All right. Welcome, everyone. This is the first uh, weekly shows that I have right now uh, related to interviewing and um, talking to some of the top advisors and realtors all across the country. And for the first show, we have Ed Diaz out of Kuno Mortgage here locally in the Bay Area that has joined us. And so we have a lot of questions um, to talk about in terms of the lending space. I'm sure things have changed quite a bit over the last several weeks. Um, however, maybe before we get to that, Ed, thank you so much for coming. Why don't you share a little bit of your background as to you know how long you've been in the business, but also maybe the different companies you've been at um, yeah. as you went through uh, your journey as, as a top lender here in the Bay Area. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, by the way, Spencer, for for allowing me to come in on this uh, interview because, yeah, there's a lot to unpack. So my name is Ed Diaz, and I'm co-owner of Kuno Mortgage Advisors, and I've been in the mortgage business for slightly over 20 years. And prior to that, I was a licensed securities licensed financial advisor. Then I went into commercial lending. For those of you who remember, there was a little bank called CalFed Bank that got bought out by Citibank. And it was one of those community banks. And it was very much, you know, handshaking everybody. You knew when the kids were having their baseball games. You know, it was that kind of old school banking where everything got done on a, on a handshake and the person's work, right? And then I went into, into credit. I had a credit company and I was recruited after that into the mortgage business, you know, much to, uh, to my amazement, I figured I'd be in it for a year and here we are 20 years later, which is usually how it works. And nice. so I'm a, I'm a little bit of a different kind of animal in the sense that I have melded all those disciplines into my mortgage business. And I very much take the advisor part, which is one of the reasons why our company also has the word advisors. That's very strategic, by the way because we hang our hats on advisement and education, really getting to unpack and custom tailor our mortgage strategy for every client. Cause you know, people's finances and their backgrounds are much like shoes. Everybody's got a different shoe size. So everybody has a unique situation. So we want to cater to that on top of, of course, giving very boutique like service. Wonderful. And can you share, um, what, for example, like what were your production figures were last year? And then maybe, and I know we had a, maybe the first part of the year was probably really hot, but I'd love to hear maybe your thoughts as to how this year may plan out for you just from a business perspective. Yeah, no, we're, um, we're actually doing really well. I'm surprised how much activity we have. I mean, and we're going to get into the lending part. It has become more difficult, but one of the blessings of having gone back into the brokerage side is the fact that we have more options. And so when mm -hmm. a couple of lenders either decide not to do certain programs or get out of the business or pause altogether, we're able to shift very quickly, much like a dolphin does in water mm -hmm. to other lenders who are still taking some calculated risks. Uh, so that's, that's been very important. And by the way, just to answer the other question you, you mentioned earlier, like what type of banks I've been at, I've been, with Movement Mortgage, I was with Fairway. Before that, I was with with Bank of California. I had a mortgage division called Bank Home Loans, and then I was with First California Mortgage, which is where I started my career under the tutelage of David Armstrong, who was one of the owners of that bank. And so, again, you know, it's been a twenty-year career. Nice. But I definitely see the volumes coming back. The interesting thing is that the persistence 
and the quality. And what I mean by quality, I mean the commitment of the person who's coming to me now is a lot higher than it has been. And just to give you an example, initial questions typically are, Ed, so what kind of rates do you have? Now that kind of question really has gone silent. Now it's more, right. what are your thoughts? What's your advice? Do you have any strategy for me? So I'm seeing more of that, people leaning more on how can they best position themselves as opposed to, well, what is your rate now? Because the reality is nobody owns a rate and rates have been so volatile that I could tell you a rate right now and in about 20 minutes, I could tell you that the rate has changed. I, you know, I'll actually add to that where in the past when everything was hot, there's so many different lenders out there. Yeah. And so when my clients or just consumers in general, they would rate shop a lot because a lot. that's because everybody you know everybody can technically close everybody's like quote unquote doing well but now where there's consolidation in the space um it's more of who can actually get the loan done right and it's really those that are you know the seasoned professionals the ones that are still doing a lot of business the ones that really know the space um are the ones that are doing well and so it's really interesting, actually. That it's less about oh, what's the best rate? What's the best rate? Or or your rate is you know, point one percent higher. Okay, I'm gonna use somebody else. I don't get that right. question either these days. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting paradigm shift, right? And, and you're right. Look, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes in the mortgage industry. Matter of fact, it's like an iceberg. What most consumers see is about just the tip. The majority of it is underwater. And it's to borrow another analogy, it's like the Wizard of Oz. You don't really see what the consumer sees is the big wizard on the screen, but they don't see the true wizard behind the curtains. And right. part of that is you're right. It's which are the lenders that can get it done? Because you might have a lender that may offer a lower rate only because they're they might be able to leverage, for example, bank accounts. You might open up a checking or savings account. They can leverage that even though they will use the mortgage as a loss leader because they won't make much money on that. They know that they can make it up by reinvesting and reusing your deposits because there's a 10% reserve requirement and 90% mm -hmm. of the money that is sitting in your checking and savings right now is being utilized by the banks to get an enormous ROI that you you may or may not be aware of. So sometimes getting the lowest rate may mean that you get a lender that just cannot perform. They're just mm -hmm. too slow, their processes, their bureaucracy, their culture. Believe it or not, culture does matter, particularly in the mortgage business, because there's so many people that touch a mortgage. You know, the average mortgage gets touched by 23 people. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, you're only as good as the weakest person. If that one person that's an integral part of that whole process slips up or is slow, then it slows down and bottlenecks the whole process. So you got to be careful to watch out with who you work with and that's part of our vetting process with our lenders as well is that we look for of course great rates because we want to wow our clients we mm -hmm. because our referral streams are the most important part of our business we don't get an annuity we don't get a piece of your mortgage payment every month the only way we annuitize this business is through referral streams so number one is we want to make sure that we have a lender that has very competitive rates Plus, the second part is we don't get paid on rate, by the way. So those of you who think that we offer a higher rate because we get paid more money, it doesn't work that way. We don't get mm -hmm. paid on rate. So we want to make sure that the client gets really great rates. Number two is we want to make sure that they have a process in place where we can close very, very fast. I mean, we have clear to closes in seven days. Oh. You know, we're closing deals still in this environment. 
in 14, 21 days. You know, 30 days to me is just seems like a lifetime, right? Even under COVID-19. So we're closing our deals very quick, but we have to have lenders that really understand our process and also are willing to step up as opposed to saying, which I've heard this many times by lenders who just don't want to step up. They'll say, well, we need you to to set expectations better with your clients. Well, no, I need to set better expectations with you that mm -hmm. this is the type of client and the way we, we operate is on speed. So speed matters because you want to put better terms also when you're putting in an offer. Because right. if you think about it from the standpoint of a seller, they get two identical offers, same amount of money. One of them is going to close in 30 days. The other one's going to close in 14 or 15 days. Guess who they're going to grab? Right. They're going to grab that fast performing because they want to get out as quickly as you want to get in. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I know I, I saw and, and many people have saw, especially with Chase as being one of the larger banks out there. They had um, done quite a bit of restrictions in terms of their uh, their guidelines, and so what products have you seen either disappear or get stricter over the last several weeks? Um, and and do you feel they're coming back anytime soon? Too. Yeah. So great question. Yes. You know when Chase announced that they were only going to do twenty percent down minimum and you know, 700 credit scores. What they're really saying is that they're retreating to safety. It's it's risk, right? It's risk mitigation. That's all it is. Uh, you know, they're a huge whale, right, in the ocean, as opposed to my analogy prior, which is I'm, I'm the fast dolphin in the water. Mm -hmm. uh, they have to do that, really, to stay afloat and to stay profitable. Whereas us, as a mortgage broker, we're out there talking to hundreds of lenders. So, some of these programs that you've seen either be stifled in a few ways. One, because they're not doing them or they're pricing their rates so high, they're padding them, which essentially they're just saying we're not doing these loans, are going to be the non-QM. So after 2008, mm -hmm. the, the lending was really divided into two. One is called the QM, the qualified mortgage, which is your vanilla stuff, right? 20% mm -hmm. down is the regular conventional loans. And then the other flip side of that coin is the non-QM, the non-qualified mortgage. That's more of what I call the creative gray area. What are those? If you're self-employed, a bank statement program, for example, or let's just say you're a trust fund person who doesn't have any income, but you have plenty of assets. We do an asset depletion program. Mm -hmm. uh, other ones um, are going to be ITIN number kind of, of loans, right? Really outside mm -hmm. the box. So those have been quieted somewhat, even though I still have them because, again, I'm a broker. The other mm. part is the jumbo loans. Mm. You know, this doesn't apply to everywhere, but here in, in the high-priced counties such as, you know, San Francisco, San Mateo, Marin counties, and a lot of the uh, – in Contra Costa County and Alameda counties, those kind of places, your your maximum loan amount is 765500 uh, And so – in San Francisco, that's a hard thing to do because, you know, the median price is $1.5, $1.6 million, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to have to put a lot of money down to be able to keep that conventional loan. Any amount above that $765, uh, $600 is going to be a jumbo loan. And those, because they're not insured, have really, have really been quieted a lot. And we're starting to see restrictions such as restricting the debt to the income ratios coming down. You know, as opposed to being like 43%, bringing them down to 36 or 40%. They want to see reserves now, greater reserves. 
Uh, the other piece is they want to see higher FICO scores, right? And and mm-hmm. by the way, when we say high higher FICO scores, the lending industry uses the middle or the median score. It's not an average of the three credit reporting agencies. It's the actual middle number. So that's the number that we always reference. And if there's more than one borrower, what is used is whoever has the lowest of the median score. So we want to see that number typically 700 or above is what they're wanting. But again, all that said, I still have programs that are operating somewhat before or BC, I call it before COVID. I still have those programs. Um, they're not as plentiful as before, so I don't have as many options to shop it mm-hmm. with, but they're still available. And are there still programs like 5% down, 10% down? Are they still available or is it all 20% down these days? No, you can actually still do 3.5% down on FHA, for example. Again, to the conforming loan limits of 765, 600, but that's right. for one unit. And one uh, one thing that I wanted to mention, a lot of people don't know this, is that on FHA, you can go to four units. So if you go to two units, like 900,000, mm-hmm. if you go to three, it's like 1.1. And if you go to four, it's like one point, almost $1.4 million loan. Mm-hmm. So sometimes if you can't buy a single unit, maybe it behooves you to recruit a friend or two that's in the same situation as you who wants to buy, maybe you two-step it. You buy a duplex, wait for it to appreciate, sell it or sell your portion of it, and go buy that other house that you were planning to initially. It's better than paying somebody else's mortgage called rent. Right. Very good. And so this actually segues to a great question related to um, the multifamily space. How are those math equations calculated where you live in one unit, but the other three units are rented out? Uh, does as a lender, do you factor in those other uh, rental figures as part of the overall package versus because I'm sure that's should be different than a single family home. Is that how it's done or how does the math work for multifamily? Yeah, on a single family home, unless you're going to rent the whole thing out, you can't live in it. They don't allow what are called bo- what is called border income. Border income is where you're renting out rooms. There's mm-hmm. one exception. If you're disabled and you have a person taking care of you who is paying you rent, you can utilize that. But otherwise, there's no other exceptions. And people don't know about that exception, by the way. Mm-hmm. When it comes to units, a new rule was passed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac this year, January of this year, 2020, where it restricted severely the use of rental income to qualify. And what the rule is essentially is that if you you must own a primary residence or have owned within the last three years, if you have depending on how long you've owned it, if you've owned it for more than one year, they allow you to use the rents to offset the total payment and whatever is overage, they allow that to be added to your income. If you've had it for less than a year, that primary residence, they only allow you to offset the rental income on the mortgage payment. So if there's any overage, you do not get to add that to your income. Oh, interesting. So a first time, so it helps people that are existing owners, but not first time buyers. Correct. Right. It used to be that no matter who it was, whether you were first time oh. home buyer or not, which by the way, the definition of first time home buyer means that you have not had an interest in a property in the last three years. So technically every three years that you have not had an interest in real estate, you're a first time home buyer. And I want to clarify that because people think it's I've never owned, and that's the only person who could be a first-time homebuyer. But it used to be mm-hmm. where you would be given 75% of the gross rents, period. That was it. Mm-hmm. It would get added onto your income, and then you offset it with, with the mortgage payment. Mm-hmm. Got it. And 
one of the questions I get asked now is like, should I, you know, the rates are at certain rates right now. And should I buy now or should I buy later because interest rates may drop? So the question is, one, how quickly can people refinance after their purchase? Yeah, and this is a little bit of a loaded question, and, and I'll unpack it and, under, and explain. Let me give you the simple answer. The simple answer is that you can refinance anytime. Why? Because the Dodd-Frank Act after 2008 made it illegal to have prepayment penalties on residential loans. So you can do whatever you want. However, there's a little PS here. What most people don't realize is that if you refinance within six months, then the loan officer who did your loan has to pay back 100% of their commission income. So now this is an ethical question. Hmm. Would you want somebody to take away your income that you made six months ago? Probably not, right? Mm -hmm. So you treat others as you would like to be treated, the old golden rule. So ethically, I would say don't do it before six months. But could you legally? Yes, you could. You can refinance as many times as you want over and over and over again because there are no prepayment penalties. Mm -hmm. So technically you can. Interesting. But I don't, I mean, that's the first time I've heard that there's a clawback. Do you think most consumers know that? No, I would say yeah. even a lot of people, I would say even a lot of realtors don't, don't know that it's called right. an EPO. It's an early payoff. Uh -huh. And that's one of the things that is hurting the mortgage industry right now, because let's be honest, and this kind of answers the other question is the fed artificially has lowered these rates. Right. And the problem is, is that they've been buying more and more mortgage bonds to lower artificially these rates. And every time they lower rates again and again, guess what happens? It causes a whole new wave of people refinancing that have refinanced once or twice or three times in the last six months. And it's causing a lot of EPO early payoff of the mortgage industry having to pay back all that earned commission. And it's causing massive problems because we're not talking about 10 people. We're talking about millions of people, right? Yeah, right. Got so it. it's an unintended consequence, unfortunately. How, how do you look at what interest rates are likely to be over the year? Is it like you just mentioned on one end, because of all the government stimulus, the rates should be going down, but it's like a stepping stone down because anytime you have anything meaningful, then a lot of people will, would want to refinance for, for good reason. Um, and then kind of props back up a little bit and then goes back down over time yeah. as they handle the load. Like, what do you see with interest rates over the year? Yeah, I do think they're going to continue to go down. But let, let me pause here and say that whether it be stocks, because remember, my, my background was in security. I was a securities licensed uh, financial advisor, whether it's stocks or timing interest rates, market timers has been spanked over history. Right. I think what you need to really focus on is not the next best thing attitude, meaning let me just get the absolute rock bottom. Otherwise, I'm not going to move. The reality is most of us, including me, and I've been in this business a long time, we don't, we can't time things 100%. Now, I'm really good at being able to time rates. And even I, you know, can't time 100% the right. absolute rock bottom rate. So don't get caught up in that emotional roller coaster. What I would say is, look, if you can, then do. Mm -hmm. If you're getting, for example, a three or a three and a quarter percent rate, look at history. The average rate has been six and a half percent. 
Look, three and a quarter percent rate is really good. And you're going to try to time it to go down to 2.75. What if that never happens? What if it goes the other way and you miss the 3.25? Look right. at the people that had the opportunity to buy Facebook stock for nothing when it first came out, right? And right. now if they would have done that, they, they would be completely independently wealthy, but they didn't. And now they're buying it at today's price. It's the same analogy. Just make sure that you are getting a really great rate. Take it and run because don't forget that for every minute that you are not a homeowner, that's another minute of equity that you're foregoing. So that's right. the other part that people don't think about is that, yeah, you can play the rate game all day long, but at what equity cost? Does that make sense? It does. Absolutely. And um, so for those that are homeowners that let's say have bought over the last one or two years and they have whatever rate they have, is there a rule of thumb of how one should think about one should like what when is a good time for them to refinance like how much of a rate difference does it say hey, look it's not worth the effort and all this time to do it or a quarter basis is now worth it is there some sort of guideline there where they can kind of monitor themselves and say hey, look this is a good time or this is not a good time yeah i have my own rule of thumb again borrowing from my financial planning days look depending on your loan amount will depend and the cost mm. of that rate. So let me let me explain further what this means. You can have a $230,000 loan and have a four and a half percent and I can get you three and a quarter. The difference in the payment a month is gonna be nominal because your, your loan amount is so tiny. Now that right. same interest rate difference on a 600 or $700,000 loan now is substantial. Sometimes even a quarter percent movement on a seven or $800,000 loan means hundreds of dollars a month. So that's something you want to, you want to look at. I personally have a formula. Here's the way I do it. I take the cost, the total cost of this loan, whether it be closing costs and, or the points. And we'll talk about points here in a second mm -hmm. for, for a certain interest rate, because you're buying down the rate. You take the total cost, right? You divide it by the difference in monthly payment between what you have and what you're getting, and then divide that by 12. That's gonna give you the number of years it will take you to recuperate the total cost by the difference in your monthly payment. I look at it this way. If you can recoup your total cost within 40% of the period of time you're gonna keep this property, then do it. For example, let's just say that I'm going to recoup the closing cost on a five, what I think is going to be a five year stay in this house. I'm going to recoup it in one to two years. That makes sense to me. But if you're going to recoup it in four, four and a half years, that makes no sense. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of how I look at it. I, I like the numbers as opposed to the emotion, rates are more emotional. Because if I say to you, hey, Spencer, you know, I can drop your rate from four and a half to 3.25. Mm -hmm. Emotionally, if you're like, wow, that's a big difference. But if the payment difference is 50 bucks and it's costing you eight grand, do mm -hmm. that math. It makes no sense. Right. Especially on a property that you're not gonna keep for a long term. And let's be honest, the younger you are, the less the chances you're going to keep this property long term, it's not going to be your forever home. Right. So these are all the questions that I always 
ask and go through in my discovery process. Again, because I'm coming from a 30,000 up in the air view, I want to help you make really great financial decisions, ones that you can thrive with over time as opposed to just selling you alone. Look, anybody can sell anything, right? But this is a massive investment, the most amount of debt you'll probably ever have tied to one of the biggest dreams you've ever had, right? Home ownership. Mm -hmm. And so that brings up a, a good point related to interest rates that you see that are posted online. So 3.3%, 30 or fixed, whatever it may be. Can you share with the audience, like, while that's an advertised rate, it doesn't show the closing cost, doesn't show any of the, the loan fees. Correct. But it, from my understanding, it's a sliding scale, though. So, for example, if you pay a higher interest rate, then you may get some credit back. There's some math equation that happens. Is that how it works or how does it work? It's, um, sorry, drop my, uh, drop my my mouse. So I actually, believe it or not, I, are you here? I'm here, so, yep. Oh, okay, hold on a sec. Okay, there we go. I actually took a picture of an ad last night, funny enough, and, and it wasn't to cue this meeting up, but I thought that this was uh, a bit funny. So there's this ad. I don't know if you can see this really quickly. So there's this ad by owning. Mm -hmm. If you look at this, looks pretty enticing, right? Yes. 2.625. Wow. For a 15-year fix, that sounds awesome. So what I did is I froze it, and I'll read to you what it says. It says... This offer applies to first mortgage loans in the amount of 300,000 to 510,400, okay? With a minimum mid-FICO score of 740 and a maximum loan to value of 50%. So what are they saying? They're oh, saying your loan cannot be more than 50% of the value of your house. That means you have 50% equity. How many people have that? You just eliminated the majority of people. A 740 middle credit score, you just eliminated a ton more people. And the loan amount of 300,000 to 510, that might be great in Tennessee. In California, good luck. So notice how it's enticing, but people don't read the fine print. So, you know, you have to look at debt to income ratios, right? Mm -hmm. And that, on a conventional loan, you don't want to go really above, in my opinion, 48%, meaning 48 cents of every dollar you make gross goes towards your debt. Okay. The next is loan to value. How much equity do you have in the house? The greater equity, the more, the better the pricing is going to be on rates. The other piece is, is it a condo versus a single family? Condos, because they're quote unquote riskier, because you have an HOA, and let's be frank, not a lot of HOAs are managed well. Okay. And there's always litigation with condo projects and all these issues of having high density housing in one single place. You know, these kind of things are going to affect your rate. Your obviously your credit scores. 740 is an important number, by the way, to highlight. A middle credit score of 740 and above is really where you start to get the best rates. Anything below that, including a 739, because it's that that line is drawn in the sand is important, right? You're not going to get the best rate at 739 versus a 740. Okay? And then what are they going to look at? They're going to look at also, if you're in a jumbo loan, they're going to look at reserves. They're mm -hmm. going to look at at least three months of reserves, right? For that loan. So they're going to look at all those things in order to give you 
an accurate interest rate. And add to that the actual volatility of the market. Do you see where this gets a little complicated? It's not so much, you know, press button, get loan. Right, right. <laughs> it's not that easy, folks. I know that that sounds really good and it's really great marketing, but mm -hmm. you'd be surprised how much it's not press button and get loan. A lot is involved. How do you see the, so this is, there's going to be several questions here kind of wrapped in one in terms of the industry itself. There are many online players, whether it's like yeah. an ally or, uh, I mean, you can probably get it on credit karma. It's, it's all over. There's a lot of online ones. And then you have the broker world like yours, where you have kind of all these private lenders in a sense, and then you have the traditional big banks. So just from a general landscape perspective, how, when you look at an online lender, like an ally, where do you find their strengths are and where do you find like their weakness are just from a general market and insight perspective? Well, I think their strengths are really quite frankly in the marketing side. They have big budgets and they're able to market a lot, right? And if you think about what they pay their staff and their loan officers, it's small compared to like, for example, what I pay. Why? Because they're leveraging, right? It's economies of scale, right? Hmm. Um, the the minuses are number one they don't pay well uh, and typically why would a loan officer go to like a big bank and those kind of things it's because they're getting leads right they're either not good at it or don't want to go out and shake hands and kiss babies and create the relationships necessary to get that amount of referral flow to make a good living so staff not paid as well mm -hmm. right the other part is that typically you have bigger bureaucracies, man, and it's a culture that is typically slower. There's very few banks that are huge that can really navigate, which is the reason why we see some of these big boxes are the first ones that starts to suffer, right? They start to pull back. Look what Chase is doing. They're pulling back, right? Because they do everything. Think about it. You want a checking account? You go to them. You want mm -hmm. a car loan? You go to them, right? It's kind of like what I call the chef cook and bottle washer approach, whereas where this is all we do. We don't have a checking account. Mm -hmm. We don't have an auto loan. This is all we do. And because again, going back to the fact that we can leverage many lenders, we don't work for a particular lender. So there's no bias there. Mm -hmm. We strictly work for the client to go out and professionally shop that loan based on the client's shoe size and their particular situation. Right. So we're a lot more nimble. And by the way, prior to 2008, 70, 75% of every loan originated in the United States was a brokered loan but we went away after the collapse and now you're starting to see a resurgence again of the broker world because we're better equipped this is broker world 2.0 if you will we're better we're more cohesive we have more options and now we have associations like aim that have allowed us to become to use all the brokers to go to one association and leverage the power of numbers to be able to get better pricing and more marketing and more resources from the investors and the lenders that are out there that we place our loans with. Interesting. Oh, wow. I, I did not know that there's this more of a, you know, while you guys are independent on one end, there's this infrastructure that's set up to uh, help you guys, you know, basically join together. Yeah, it's like a union, right? Yeah. Without yeah. being a union, but it's 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 our collective right. voice going into one place to lobby, right? And right. to also collaborate, and then to aggregate, 
resources. And so we've become a lot more powerful than we've ever been. And this is the reason why I jumped from working for big banks and big lenders to the brokerage world. And I will tell you, I've never looked back. I can offer my clients incredible rates, incredible speed. And then I get to custom tailor the relationship and the touch right. points and the nurturing with a very bespoke custom suit mm -hmm. tailoring kind of approach. Nice. Very nice. Well, Ed, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Well, thank you so much for joining this. I'm sure, you know, I've oh, learned you, a lot. And so I, I'm, I can assure that my audience would have learned a lot. Oh, awesome. Um, so I can how check can that box. <laughs> yeah. So how can people get a hold of you? Um, I'll have your details, of course, written down. Yeah. But uh, in the meantime, Mike, how can people get a hold of you? What's the best way of getting in touch? Yeah, the best way to get a hold of me is really either text me because, again, look, I'm I'm one of those guys. Uh, I'm, I'm always doing something, right, and always delivering content as well. You can go on all my social feeds. I do have a YouTube channel, but you can you can text me, 415-368-1149. You can email me, ed at kuno, K-U-N-O advisors.com. I'm extremely approachable. Like I said, I've been doing this a long time. I love the strategy calls. So this is not about selling you a mortgage. This is about collectively coming together to see what your dreams are, what your needs and wants are. And let's put a game plan together. Yeah. I mean, and I'll, you know, we have a comment from Walter that I'll, I'll post here, but, um, yeah, I think it's important for a lot of people like right now, given where we're at, you know, sure, rates are always important and they're always going to be a, a factor. But yes. the expertise and the ability for somebody to ensure you close, like I, I tell my clients this all the time, you know, there's certain types of banks or certain types of people that I would trust. Don't, I mean, the, yeah. the rate is important, but it's not important if you can't even close. Like <laughs> you don't want to get this teaser rate. And then once you're in contract, your 3% earnest money is at risk. Like that's significantly more 100%. than any, any any sort of rate difference that you can possibly get. So it's uh, it's important for my clients and, and for the people to generally know like the, the closing and ensuring that you're taken care of is especially more important now than ever before. Yes. Yeah. And, so and can I say something that. really quickly on that note just to, to, to finalize this is that, look, rates are important. We understand. Right. It's your money and it's very hard earned money. So let me give you a question that is the appropriate question to ask. Not what is your rate? Here's what you ask. What is your interest rate lock strategy? What is mm. your strategy to lock in the rate when it is time to lock in your rate? Because if mm. you don't even have a house, you don't have an offer accepted, what's the point of that rate being quoted to you? It's just the teaser rate for a reason. Right. The rate only counts after you get an offer accepted because you have a house to tether it to. So whether it's me or anybody else, any other loan officer, ask the proper question, which is what is your interest rate lock strategy? What's your strategy to lock in my rate? That's important. And see what how they reply. And we'll leave it at that. That's how we'll leave it. I mean, I, I've never asked that. And uh, I think that's a great tip because like you just brought up, they can shop around right now, but it doesn't matter until you're actually in contract. That's and, right. Uh, so, so they can tease whatever they, I can say you get a 0% right. If I wanted to, it doesn't mean anything yeah, and right then, now. And then when you get in the contract, Oh yeah. Geez, that was a deal. <laughs> right. right. To your point. <laughs> Very Thanks good. Again, Spencer. All I right. appreciate it. And thank you, Walter. Yeah. By the way, a quick shout out to Walter Chow. He's my tax guy. And thank you for the happy birthday. Tomorrow's my birthday. 
Uh, he is awesome. Great tax person. Hopefully you'll interview him one of these days <laughs> as well next because he is definitely one of the best, if not the best tax person I've ever seen. Walter, if you're, I'm going to send this link to you, but yes, we will get that set up for sure. Awesome. <laughs> All, right, All right. Have thanks. a good one. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you like the contents, please be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star rating.